In this lesson, we will consider a cornerstone in relation to constitutional law of the UK and the English legal system, which is parliamentary sovereignty. As a whole, we considered earlier about countries with written and unwritten constitutions. The UK being a country with an unwritten or purportedly unwritten constitution does not have one comprehensive document that is above everything else, which everything else is derived from. Therefore, having an unwritten constitution where the constitution is derived from various a myriad of sources, so to speak, the UK prides itself on being a parliamentary sovereignty, as in the Acts of Parliament being paramount and being the supreme law of the land. Now, it must be noted that we consider the word sovereignty as being above all and the ultimate rule. Every country is a sovereign country. Therefore, a country has no right to control another and vice versa. Therefore, sovereign immunity means that a head of a sovereign country cannot be held accountable for his actions during his tenure. Similarly, in the separation of powers, we considered uh, in relation to the independence of the judiciary that to fulfill that objective of securing the independence of the judiciary, judges must be immune and must have security of tenure. When we consider sovereignty, however, there is two main types of sovereignty. On the one hand, you have political sovereignty, which technically lies with the people of the state because it's the people that ultimately elect their representatives by way of exercising their franchise, which is the vote. On the other hand, you have legal sovereignty, which is the power to make laws and therefore is vested with parliament and the executive. There is a correlation between legal and political sovereignty. One cannot exist without the other in many circumstances because legal sovereignty, in fact, depends on political sovereignty. When the parliament and the executive act in a manner disliked by the people, there is revolt and uprisings, and therefore the mandate given to parliament and the executive is revoked. We briefly touched on what was called a social contract in an earlier lesson, but for the purposes of this particular topic, social contract is where the people of a country surrender their power to a limited number of representatives to govern them. It is, in essence, the surrendering of one's powers in order to procure security. We can also think about sovereignty as a common law concept. How this works out is legal sovereignty, for example, as we considered earlier, is vested with parliament. However, this is not stated in any act. As we noted, parliament is supreme and whatever acts come out of parliament is considered as a supreme law of the land. But there is no act which notes that there is such a thing as a legal and a political sovereignty and that legal sovereignty is vested with parliament. So how exactly is it enforced and upheld? It is because judges in courts of law, the judiciary rather, accepts it and upholds it. We mentioned in an earlier lesson that you can consider a constitution as being rigid or flexible. A flexible constitution is easy to amend. The UK having an unwritten constitution can be considered as quite flexible. Acts come in, acts go out. Acts are enacted and repealed. A feature of an unwritten constitution, which is quite prevalent in creating this flexibility, is the notion of implied repeal. Now, in order to understand implied repeal, we must consider express repeal, which is the fact that any parliament can expressly take back or repeal an act. Now, theoretically, this can be done for any act which is passed by parliament. 
fortunately for the citizens, there are instances in which crucial acts cannot be repealed primarily due to political reasons. As we noted earlier, the whole notion that legal sovereignty rests with parliament is if citizens who have the political sovereignty want them to have it. Thus, express repeal being considered as the power that the parliament has to repeal an act expressly, implied repeal refers to where conflicts occur between acts, the latest acts become law. Now, this does not mean that the entire preceding act is removed as a whole. Merely, the conflicting bits, not the entire act, may be repealed. Have a look at Ellen Street Estates and Ministry of Health, as well as Vauxhall Estates Limited and Liverpool Corporation. Both of these cases are available in your case summaries. This will elucidate further the concept of implied repeal. One of the pivotal figures in relation to the analysis of parliamentary sovereignty, much like the rule of law, is A.V. Dicey. He propounded three theories, rather three limbs, in relation to parliamentary sovereignty. Firstly, Parliament may legislate on any subject matter. Secondly, no Parliament can restrict the power of a successive Parliament. And thirdly, no one can question the validity of Acts of Parliament in a court of law. We will look at each individual limb in turn. Parliament has a sole power to legislate and there is no limit of subject matter. Now, as a whole, this seems like a complete mass authority and power provided to Parliament, and it does not have any limits. But in fact, when you consider the contemporary context of the UK and certain treaties and agreements that they have come to with other countries, we see that the whole premise of the ability of Parliament to legislate on anything has been questioned. A good example of this is the Burma oil case, which is available in your case summaries, which relates to retrospective legislature. Another component or another example would be extra legal limits imposed on the Parliament of UK in terms of legislating. For instance, Parliament does not have the right to repeal independence of a sovereign state, which they had granted. While theoretically, on paper, it can be done so, it does not have any legal application and there is no forceful act that can occur from it. Moreover, it can also be considered as legally proper or legally right, but politically wrong. Supremacy of Parliament and the international law is another example that we must consider when we consider Dicey's first limb. UK is in fact a dualist country. It has its own sovereign powers. But... When you think about the European Communities Act of 1972, uh, the European Convention on Human Rights and its application within the UK uh, through the Human Rights Act of 1998, we see that there are foreign sovereign nations and authorities that have stipulated certain things which the bicameral parliament of the UK has had to adhere to. Therefore, the UK parliamentary may have voluntarily accepted treaties and laws therein putting into question the first limb of Dicey's in relation to parliamentary sovereignty, which is the power of parliament to legislate on whatever it wants, on whatever subject matter with no limit. The second limb of Dicey's analysis is the fact that parliament cannot be bound. It cannot bind a successive parliament. So when you consider the first limb, that parliament can legislate on any subject matter, and then the subsequent exception to it, that it cannot bind itself, uh, bind its successive parliaments, we note the very first example that 
puts the second limb into question. Secondly, we can think of acts like the Act of Union with Scotland in 1707, which also puts into question the validity of Dicey's second limb. Have a look at Attorney General for New South Wales and Tretovan for a good example of where there have been limits imposed on Dicey's second limb. Finally, Dicey's third limb is that the validity of Parliament or the validity of an act cannot be challenged. And the purpose of this can be expounded through the Enrolled Bill Rule, which states that once an act goes through Parliament, it cannot be challenged. The limits on the third limb can be seen through the concept of implied repeal that we discussed earlier on in this topic. Have a look at Pickens and British Railways in relation to the third limb of Dicey's. It's available in your case summaries in detail, so please do go through it. As I mentioned earlier on in this topic, there are certain contemporary issues with parliamentary sovereignty in the UK. Firstly, we see that it is not a complete accurate notion to think of parliamentary sovereignty as being fulfilled in its entirety in the modern world. If we consider the European Communities Act of 1972, in which the UK became part of the European Union, there are certain acts, regulations and laws which are now enacted in the UK by virtue of UK being a part of the Euro European Union. Therefore, for instance, when you take the Human Rights Act of 1998, it is in fact uh, now a requirement that if an act, if a new act being enacted by parliament is incompatible with the Human Rights Act of 1998, it must be mentioned that this is incompatible with such. Now, it must be noted that although parliament has complete authority and right to go ahead and enact an act which is incompatible with the uh, Human Rights Act of 1998, politically, due to certain reasons, it is not done so. Secondly, for example, courts are now authorized to make declarations of incompatibility uh, with the Human Rights Act. If a certain act violates certain principles and norms within the Human Rights Act, a court can actually declare that it is incompatible. Uh, this, in fact, also uh, puts into question the third limb of diocese, that no one can question the validity uh, of an act of parliament. No one can, the validity of an act cannot be challenged. Now that we have considered the outlining context of parliamentary sovereignty, let's summarize and go through the various divisions as well as the subtopics that we went through. Firstly, parliamentary sovereignty, as we considered, can be either political or legal sovereignty. Both aspects of parliamentary sovereignty, as in political and legal, are interconnected. While political sovereignty remains with the people, it defines whether the legal sovereignty remains with parliament and executive a certain parliament and a certain executive. Dicey expounded three pillars or three limbs in relation to defining how parliamentary sovereignty operates. On the one hand, he noted that parliament can pass any law. Uh, there is a difference, however, between ability and effectiveness. The first limb he expounded was that parliament can pass any law. However, contemporarily, there are certain limitations to this. For instance, extra legal factors. While Parliament can, in fact, legislate on any subject matter, its limits are to that of the UK. It cannot, for instance, repeal independence given to a sovereign country because it would have no legal effect. Secondly, Parliament can't bind a successive Parliament. There are several limitations to this as well. Uh, for instance, the Acts of Union in 1707 is a good example. Thirdly, courts can't hold an act void or courts can't 
question the validity of an act. The whole premise of this can be seen in the, the notion of enrolled bill, where once an act passes through parliament, uh, once a bill rather passes to parliament and becomes an act, it cannot be questioned in a court of law, as well as implied repeal, uh, Vauxhall Estates and Liverpool Corporation. In a modern context, finally, all three limbs of diocese has been put into question. And this is a very simplistic overview of it. But for instance, the first limb, which is the fact that Parliament has the power to legislate on any subject matter, has been put into question by the European Communities Act of 1972, which now means that an act that goes through Parliament uh, has to be in accordance with certain uh, European Union bylaws and regulations that might be imposed as a political means, not really as a legal means. Uh, the second limb, for instance, uh, in relation to the fact that the parliament cannot bind a successive parliament has also been put into question with specific acts like uh, the Government of Wales Act, the Scotland Act, uh, the Northern Ireland Act, so on and so forth. Finally, the third limb in relation to the, f the notion that courts or no one can actually question the validity of an act has now been put into doubt due to the Human Rights Act of 1998, where now courts have the ability to declare, uh, to declare incompatibility. And the fact that when a new act is to be enacted, when a bill goes through parliament, it must be mentioned if it is incompatible with the Human Rights Act of 1998. That was a very succinct overview of parliamentary sovereignty. It is a very vast topic and there's a lot to cover, but this will give you a context and a bird's eye picture of the entire scheme or the entire subject matter that you will be getting into. Please do go through the case summaries which have been provided along with this course, as well as the subject material, which is the slides that I've been conducting thus far. In the next lesson, we will go on to dissect further on parliamentary sovereignty by considering the bicameral parliament of UK, which is the House of Commons and the House of Lords.